Amen. You guys can have a seat. If you're here for the first time, know that we're so glad uh, that you chose to be with us today. We know you could be in a ton of different places, but we're so glad that you're here with us. Today we're in the end of John 12, and we're seeing Jesus' last public teaching before his death. And let's just say it's a bit of a doozy. Like This is not an easy text to preach, and parts of it are hard to wrestle with. It may even make you mad, or maybe even sad, and so I say welcome. <laughs> but despair not, because on the other side of being mad or sad about the truths that we will see today, it, it will lead us into a greater intensity and devotion and love for Jesus. But it's still a hard one to wrestle with. You know, just generally speaking, as a life principle, if we skip around or we skip over things that are hard and ignore them or glaze past them, we won't grow. The same thing is true in the Bible. We have to wrestle with hard texts and hard truths. And when we do that, our faith grows. And so we go from mad and sad about something to a more intense love and devotion. You know, and just as another note, one of the convictions that we hold here at New City is that we mostly preach through books of the Bible. And one of the reasons we do that is because it forces us to take on hard texts like today. It forces us to tackle topics like unbelief. Why people don't believe in Jesus, which leads us to our main idea. Understanding unbelief leads us to greater belief. And before we dive into our text, I want you to think about unbelief with me for a second. You know, we often think people don't, like, don't believe in Jesus because they lack understanding or they, lack, or, or they don't think Christianity is logical. Maybe seeing it as some sort of crazy mysticism or silly spiritualism. Maybe viewing Christianity like UFOs or the Easter Bunny. Or maybe thinking Christianity seems like some kind of crazy dream. You know, this past week, my seven-year-old son, he woke up uh, and he had a dream that his older sister was going through the school at their spring fling, kind of their school fair, uh, and that just happened about a week ago. And in his dream, his sister was crushing the school with her hand. Like, he said she wasn't a giant. Uh, and She didn't have superpowers, but somehow her hand was able to crush the school. I mean, it seems terrifying, which is why he ended up uh, get, coming and get, get, getting us in the middle of the night. You know, it's just one of those crazy dreams that don't make logical sense. But you know what? He believed it. It seemed so real in his dream, and he believed it, and he couldn't sleep. And I knew it wasn't true when he woke, and when he woke up, he realized it also wasn't true, but while he was sleeping, he believed it. And you know, from my experience with people who do not believe in Jesus, they often view believing in Jesus as some kind of crazy dream that's not logical. But then when you kind of get down to it and show them how truly logical and rational believing in Jesus truly is, they still don't believe it which shows us that belief and unbelief is way more than just intellectual understanding. Yes, we have an extremely logical and rational faith, and we need to think well and use our minds, but at the end of the day, we must come to terms that our faith is much more than just mental assent. It's way more than just mental understanding. Our faith and our belief, it's a spiritual heart thing. Our faith is both a mind thing and it's a heart thing. We need both. I mean, just think about this. Even Satan understood the gospel intellectually. Satan knew that Jesus was God's son, but yet he still rejected Jesus. Why? Because his heart was hard. 
So yes, knowing the facts uh, and knowing God with our minds is of great importance, but as we'll see today, it's way more than that. And so during our time, we're going to have two contrasting points as we walk through our passage. Uh, Jesus' last public teaching, which it'll be number one, true belief, and number two, unbelief. You know, the entire book of John, as we've been saying, was written so that people would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You know, it's probably fair to say that every sermon in John could fall under one of two categories. Uh, it's either a belief sermon or a half full life in Jesus sermon. You know, last week we saw uh, that full life in Jesus comes through a process of death. We're called as Christians to die to ourselves. In order to gain uh, life... Or in order to gain our life, we lose it. We're called to lay down our life. And in laying down our life, that is where full life is found. Full life is not found in making our life about us. Full life is found making our life about Jesus and others. It's found in a life of service. And in all of what we saw last week, Jesus finally said, His hour has come. Like the cross is near. He, he, we're about five, he was about five days away from hanging on the cross, realizing His impending death. And then, we read today, and then we read today, starting in John 12, verse 27, right after that, where Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And so I want to stop here and just acknowledge how deeply encouraging it is that Jesus' soul was troubled. Maybe it seems odd uh, that Jesus' soul was troubled, but that's what it says here. Again, last week we saw that right before this, Jesus was teaching that life comes through death, and yet here we see that Jesus knows this, and he sees that his death is coming. He sees that he will be hanging, bleeding, gasping for air on a cross, and he even sees the resurrection after it and the full life that will come with it. But in this verse, seeing that Jesus is troubled, Troubled, knowing the full glory of the cross that awaits him, this is encouraging. And why is this encouraging? Because it gives both me and you the freedom in our humanity to also be troubled. And as we walk through hard things uh, that we know that are good for us, like we can still be troubled. Jesus knew that full life came through a bloody cross, but yet here we know and see that it was still hard even for Jesus. Like, how encouraging is that? Uh, knowing that Jesus didn't want to feel the pain of the cross, Jesus didn't want to feel the pain of death and being beaten and dying and being removed from God the Father. He saw it and he was troubled. To that we can say, praise the Lord. Like, we too can be troubled of impending pain. We too can be troubled about the process of dying to ourselves and the hard things that God may be calling us to. Like, who wants to die to ourselves and go through the discomfort of that? I mean, really. I mean, how discouraging could it be, or would it be, if Jesus was just smiling with glee while he was being whipped? Thinking for us, do we have to smile with glee when things are really hard? When we go through a process of death? And that would say, no, not at all. New City, Jesus was troubled. And we too have the freedom to be troubled also. But I do want you to take note that although Jesus was troubled, he still courageously and without question, and in full obedience, and in joy, went to the cross to die. No, he wasn't smiling in glee while he was dying, but he was in full joy knowing that what was coming, which leads to our first point, and 
subpoint. Number one, true belief. So what does true belief in Jesus look like? Well, true belief courageously endures. Jesus saw the agony of the cross. He was troubled by it. But Jesus, in great courage, he endured the cross on our behalf. So how can you know you have real and lasting faith? Well, true faith endures courageously under trial. True faith sees the hardship and trial and obeys God even when we don't like it. Where false faith or unbelief would never endure trial. False faith withers under hardship. When the fire comes, false, false faith burns to ashes. And yet when we endure trials, uh, our faith is strengthened. True faith, we can say it this way, true faith strengthens under trials and false faith withers under trials. And Jesus knew the purpose for which he came and in obedience he continued towards the cross. So despite the trouble he felt in his soul, again, true belief, he courageously endured. Let's look at the next two verses, verses 28 and 29. Jesus said, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it, it, it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. So Jesus just said uh, to God, Father, glorify your name. And what I find kind of interesting about this is that there are three different reports of what they heard. You know, Jesus heard God say back, I've glorified it, and he'll do it again. He'll, God said, I'll do it again. But others thought they heard thunder. Uh, some thought an angel was speaking. Which uh, Some of this may draw our attention back to the book of Exodus when God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, which sounded like thunder and lightning uh, when God glorified, it, uh, glorified his name in Exodus. But he's saying, uh, God is saying he'll glorify his name again. But this time God is saying he'll glorify his name through Jesus. Uh, but in regards to true belief that Jesus is displaying here, we see that letter B, true belief glorifies God, not ourself. We see this in contrast to what he says about some of the officials later on, down in verse 43. We haven't read it yet, but down in verse 43, where we see that they sought the glory of man more than the glory of God. But as we look at this, we see that Jesus, who displayed true belief, all of his attention was focused towards God and not himself. So this is evidence of real and true faith when our life is about God and not ourselves. And yes, I understand that we all every day still seek our own glory and not God's glory and still have, we still have saving faith. But in our moments when our faith is in God and not ourselves, when we're modeling true faith, the evidence is that, uh, is that God becomes greater and we become less. And God's glory is put above our own glory. And I want you to think about this because... Uh, when it comes down to it, everything in Christianity is about God and not us, which is radically different than man-centered religion. Every other religion is what man does. It starts with the obedience of man. But true Christianity doesn't start with man-centered obedience. No, true Christianity starts with God's glory. It starts and ends by glorifying God's name. Just as Jesus said in model in verse 28, Father, glorify your name. In which God responded and said, I've done it already and I'll do it again. And how did God glorify his name? Well, by glorifying the name of Jesus. So everything in Christianity takes the attention off of us and it puts it onto Jesus. 
and says, our life is not about our name. Our life is about Jesus' name. And this is good news for us today. Because the same thing is true with obedience. Because God is not pleased with us because of our obedience. No, God is pleased with us because of Jesus' obedience. Because our obedience is not perfect. Christian, this is so incredibly freeing. And when we live or believe, uh, think differently, we've turned the glory and attention on us and not to God. Like our life is about God's glory, not ours. Our life is about Jesus' name, not ours. Our life is all about Jesus' obedience, not ours. Like Christian, you're released today from carrying the burden of this life on your shoulders. When we put all the weight of God on our, when we put all the weight on our shoulders, we're robbing God of his glory. Like when we put the weight of our job and our kids and our relationships and our standing before God on our own shoulders as if it's up to us, we're totally robbing God of his glory because we've made it about us and not God. And, you know, this is so easy for us to do. Like I do this all the time, so I know. Like I'm preaching to myself right now. But we must remember that Jesus, he courageously went to the cross. And he experienced great trouble to take the weight of sin, to take the weight off of us and to put it on himself. And in doing that, he glorified his Father's name. Christian, free yourself from that weight today. Because your life is not in your, in your hands. Your life is in the hands of the living God. Your life is not about you or what you do or what you don't do. It's totally about God and what he has done. And my friends, that, that's good news. But let's keep reading as we finish up this, this first true belief section. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him. We have heard from the law that the Christ, remain, that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So there's a lot going on here, and I'm going to try to explain some of it quickly. You know, if you remember, before this, God spoke to Jesus, and like we said, it sounded like thunder to some. And Jesus noticed that the crowd was confused by it. I mean, God spoke and said he would glorify his name again, but with what we just read, Jesus says all of this was for the crowd's sake, not for Jesus' sake. And then verse 31, Jesus said, Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. So Jesus is saying here, like, it's go time. It's time for battle. It's time for the cross. It's time for Jesus to put Satan under his reign. And then in verse 32, look what Jesus says. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So Jesus here, he's speaking about the cross. When Jesus will be lifted up on the cross, uh, when he died and he uh, rose out of the grave, when he raised from the dead, he will then uh, be begin drawing all people to himself, meaning all people all over the world will draw to himself. 
And then in verse 33, that Jesus said, when Jesus said all of this, he said all of it to show them how he would die. Jesus was teaching about his death. But many of them were confused by it, and they didn't understand what he was saying. Jesus had the cross in view and he was as he was talking, but they didn't understand that at the time. Which leads us to our last subpoint. We've seen so far that true belief courageously endures. True belief glorifies God, not ourselves. And then lastly, in our first point of true belief, uh, letter C, true belief trusts the enemy-crushing victory of Jesus. In verse 31, Jesus said the ruler of this world, meaning Satan, would be cast out. We know from Genesis 3.15 that Jesus would crush the head of Satan. And when Jesus went to the cross, died, and rose from the grave, that's what he did. Like he declared his enemy-crushing victory over Satan, and he defeated sin and death, declaring that he will cast him out. Like Jesus declared an eternal victory for, the, for all those who believe in Jesus. I mean, Jesus at the cross proclaimed to the enemy that he has won, that he is drawing all people to himself, as our text tells us in verse 32. Let's just stop here, and I want, to try, I want you to try to picture this with me. You know, this past week, uh, I started a book on Navy SEALs and how Navy SEALs can be trained to survive any catastrophe, like bombs and riots and going out to sea, uh, and with things like, also things like kidnapping and bridges collapsing and airplanes crashing and all sorts of things. There's about 35 different really intense scenarios for how Navy SEALs can survive them. And so the first one I turned to was how to survive animal attacks. You know, it started with dogs. And then went three different types of bears, black bears, brown bears, and then polar bears. And so they encourage you to have bear spray uh, and maybe a, a flare or a weapon. But if you don't have those, then they give you alternate options on how to fend them off. And so with black bears, uh, you're supposed to stand tall, stay calm, and speak forcefully with your voice, kind of waving your arms, and maybe they'll be afraid and run away. But with brown bears, however, it's different. With brown bears, you lay on the ground in the fetal position and play dead. And after about 20 minutes, maybe they'll walk away. But then it got to polar bears. And it basically said, if you see a polar bear and it's coming after you in the wild and you don't have any weapons or flares or bear spray, they basically said, you literally have no chance. Like you are as good as dead. Because these polar bears are 1,700 pounds, 11 feet tall, and can run 25 miles per hour on ice. And these bears want to eat four pounds of fat every day. Like you cannot outrun a polar bear. You cannot scare it away. And if you play dead, it will eat you. <laughs> like there is no Navy SEAL training that will help. Like you are literally, utterly helpless when facing a polar bear. And this, my friends, is how I want you to imagine Satan under the hand and power of God. Satan is utterly helpless, waiting to be destroyed. Like, he literally has no hope. It is a losing battle for him under the mighty hand of God. And when Jesus went to the cross, that's when God put Satan under his reign, and God is now waiting to destroy him. I mean, get this, right now, because of the cross... God has Satan in his hands waiting to utterly crush him and destroy him. Like if God is the polar bear, then we are his cubs on his side. And Satan is trying to flee and he's basically running on ice, like hopeless. 
And as followers of Christ, when Jesus is on our side, true belief shows unrelenting courage facing the schemes of the enemy that is still roaming around on this earth. New City Church, Satan is in the hands of the living God waiting to be crushed. And in knowing that, with Jesus on our side, we can trust the enemy-crushing victory of Jesus when our enemy speaks lies to us. Because New City, our enemy is here to kill, steal, and destroy. Satan is a liar and a deceiver seeking to draw us away from God. But because of the enemy-crushing power of Jesus, we can look at the enemy in the eye with complete confidence knowing that the sin in our life will not destroy us and then it can be overcome. I mean, I just imagine us as little cubs watching our giant polar bear God holding Satan in his hands after he spoke lies to us, trying to deceive us and destroy us, and us saying back to him directly in his face, saying, you have no power over us. Like you are under the hand, the mighty hand of God. New City Church, the cross of Jesus Christ, is a declaration of good news that evil will one day be utterly and totally destroyed. And until that day, we can walk in confidence and power, knowing that the schemes of the enemy are like a small gnat of annoyance that God will utterly smack down with his mighty hand. That, my friends, is the enemy-crushing power that is found at the cross of Christ. That is our real and true and lasting and enduring faith. And in verse 35, it says, So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Christian, we can trust today that when we are in Christ, that we are walking in the light and that the darkness of our enemy has not overtaken us. Again, the result of true belief is a confidence of God's eternal victory. And let me say this, if you have not trusted in Jesus, if you haven't trusted in his enemy-crushing victory that was declared at the cross, let me plead with you today, trust him. Trust the finished work at the cross. He wants to call you his child. He wants you to know this victory and to be released from the hands of the enemy. True belief and all that we've seen looks at Jesus and sees victory and God's glory and endurance. And these are all great and exciting. And maybe you're thinking, wait, I thought this was a hard text. This doesn't seem hard. This is great. And yes, and amen to that. Because yes, those who trust in Jesus, there is a sweetness and an eternal hope that is available. And it's truly marvelous. But this next point, church, over these next few minutes, few verses, this is where we wrestle. So I don't mean to take us off the high of what we just declared. But for a moment, this is where we may get mad or sad. And these next few verses about unbelief are hard and they're tough. But these are God's words, and so we can't ignore them and we can't skip past them. And remember, on the back end, once we get through the hard parts in the wrestling match, I'm praying we'll be propelled even more so with a greater fervency and a deeper and more fervent true belief. So let's look starting in verse 36. We're going to read it all at once, 36 down to verse 43. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put, under, put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So Jesus just spoke, and then he left. It says in verse 36, he departed and hid himself, which indicates a major shift in Jesus' ministry. His public ministry is officially over. Chapters 13 to 17 of John, it's one long private teaching of his disciples that we're going to come back to after Easter. And what we just read was commentary from the author John, and the rest of chapter 12 after this is a summary statement of Jesus' ministry. And what the author John is explaining to us is number two, unbelief. And so I want you to put uh, your deep thinking hats on with me for about 15 minutes. Okay? You know, Jesus has just spent three years doing ministry, showing himself as the Son of God. And many still did not believe. And so as we dig into unbelief, let's think about this. Because Jesus has done many miracles. He's shown his life. He's proved everything possible to these people, that he's the Messiah. He knew the scriptures. He walked on water. He turned water to wine. He fed 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch. He healed the sick and the lame. He's raised the dead man to life. And the people marveled at his teaching. Like, what else does he need to do to prove that he's the Son of God, the Messiah? And in what we just read, we can say nothing while he was living. Jesus had nothing left to prove other than the cross. Jesus had one more thing to show the world publicly, and it was his death and resurrection. So up to this point, though, he's done everything possible in his life, and people still did not believe, which for us can be a bit chilling and sad because they witnessed these miracles, and yet they still did not believe. Like, this is not fun to think about because in contrast, as we know, the results of unbelief are not good. Unbelief is a rejection of God and his word, which leads to an eternity apart from God. And the author of John in our text refers to the book of Isaiah to explain this unbelief. God spoke to Isaiah hundreds of years prior to Jesus and said and predicted that this unbelief would be the case. Look again at verse 38. Let's kind of walk through this slowly. It says, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed that we, what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So the author John here is quoting from Isaiah 53.1. And Paul in Romans chapter 10 verse 16 quotes the same thing where he speaks of the need of hearing the gospel, saying how can they believe unless they hear and the author John uses it the same way here, like they've seen and encountered Jesus, but yet they still do not believe. And God told the prophet Isaiah this would happen, that the Messiah would come, but that his people would not believe in him. And this is where it gets hard. Look at verse 39, 40, and 41. Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turned and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. 
So these are those verses that make us kind of scratch our head and want us to kind of scurry past them and maybe not think about them because they're difficult verses. Verse 39 says, they could not believe. Verse 40 says, he, that being God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Like, this is hard to wrestle with, but that's what it says. We can't like, dismiss these hard texts. Again, it says God hardened his people's hearts and he blinded their eyes, which leads us to our first of two subpoints. Letter A, unbelief is held in the sovereign hand of God. God told the prophet Isaiah that this was the case. Again, we saw the author of John in verse 39 say that they could not believe, as in it was not possible for them to believe. And why? Well, verse 40 tells us, because he, that being God, blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Like, that's what it says. So why did they not believe? Because God did not allow them to believe. Because God hardened their hearts and blinded their eyes. That's what it says. Like, that's sticky. That's tough. That's something to wrestle with. But that's what God's word says, and we can't ignore it. And the natural question we ask is, why would God harden someone's heart to keep them from believing in Jesus? Like, doesn't God love the whole world? That doesn't seem like love. And we need to know this was not just a one-time thing. This happened throughout the Bible and has been referenced in both the Old and the New Testament where God hardens the hearts of people. In the book of Exodus, we saw that God hardened Pharaoh's heart to not let the people of Israel go. We also saw that Pharaoh hardened his own heart at times. So both God hardened Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardened his own heart at different times. Paul talks about the same idea in Romans 9 through 11 and in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And when we, you look at Isaiah chapter 6, where the author, uh, who the author quoted, we see that God used Isaiah after the popular here am I, send me passage where Isaiah saw God's glory fill the temple and it propelled Isaiah to go on mission and preach. It's a great missions passage that we love to preach. I love to preach uh, on that passage for missions sending. But do you know what happened when Isaiah went? God then used Isaiah's preaching to then harden the hearts of his people. Like that's what happened in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah shined a light on their sin and rebellion and his preaching about God led them to harden their hearts. We must ask, why would God do this? Why would God harden people's hearts? And the only proper response to this question is because of their sin and rebellion. Listen to me, this is so important. Because it's not that God hardened an innocent person's heart. No, God hardened guilty hearts of guilty people. God hardened Pharaoh's heart because of his sin, because of his ruthless evil plots against Egypt. God hardened Israel's hearts toward the prophet Isaiah, uh, hearts towards the prophet Isaiah's the people because of their, re, their rebellion against God. And God hardened Israel's heart towards Jesus for the same reason, because they were guilty. Verse 37 tells us that Jesus did many signs before them, but they still did not believe in him. They were guilty. They rejected God. Which leads us to our second subpoint. Unbelief is a human responsibility. There is a divine tension here. Both are true. 
God is completely sovereign over their unbelief. He hardened their hearts and blinded their eyes. Their unbelief is held in God's hand while at the same time in perfect tension because, of, because humanity is held totally responsible for their unbelief. Again, it's not that God hardened the hearts of innocent people. God hardens the hearts of guilty people. And what makes a person guilty? It's their sin and rebellion. Maybe this will help. For example, when I discipline my children for something they've done, like acting out or not listening, let's just say we take away a privilege like maybe watching a TV show. Who then is responsible for them not watching TV or just being disciplined? Well, both of us in some way. But their actions led to their consequence. They are responsible for their actions. And maybe we think, yes, that makes sense with a small action, but maybe we're thinking God hardened the hearts of people. That seems to be a bit extreme. But in saying that, maybe with good intentions, we're unintentionally maybe minimizing the, tra- uh, the tragic effects of sin because as Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. When sin entered the world, so did death. And an infinitely holy God can't be in the presence of sin. So what did God do as their consequence? Well, he hardened the hearts of guilty sinners and rebels. And please hear me, I know this is tough to wrestle with. This is one of those divine tensions. At some level, we have to understand, though, that God sees more. He knows more. And he always knows what's best. God has infinite wisdom. And our wisdom and our knowledge is limited and finite. And so if you're a little confused by this, know that that's okay because uh, people have been trying to figure this out for over 2,000 years. But in saying that, I want you to follow me here because this is where something really sad or possibly even angering turns our attention to a more intense and joyful devotion and belief in Jesus. Because the question we must then consider and ask ourselves as those who do believe is then why are our hearts not hardened? And why do we see and believe in Jesus? Because in many ways, we're no different than those whom God hardened. We too are rebellious and evil and guilty sinners. And maybe we'd be tempted to say, well, maybe we're not as bad as Pharaoh. Or maybe we weren't as rebellious as those religious people. Begin in saying this, we're minimizing the tragic effects of our own sin. Because in reality, we're no different than them. We're just as guilty as they were. And again, we must ask, is it, uh, why is it, or we must ask, is why did God not harden our hearts if we do believe? Like, why do we see and believe in Jesus? And the answer to that question is grace. Church, believing in Jesus is a complete and total gift from God. Because those who do believe in Jesus, it is 100% only because God softens our hearts and opens up our blind eyes to see. Trusting in Jesus is 100% a gift from God. We absolutely did not save ourselves. We did not make the logical choice to save ourselves. No, we were totally dead on the floor, dead in our sins, getting exactly what we deserved in our rebellion. And then God walked up to us as we were lying as totally dead corpses on the ground. He looked at us and says, get up. I give you life. It's grace. It's total grace unmerited, undeserved grace. 
Listen, you don't believe because you're smart and you just got it. You do not believe because you're super obedient. It's not because you weren't as bad as everybody else. It's not because your parents are believers or your friends are believers. It is totally, 100%, a free gift of God to you for him to look down on you and me and say to you and me, I choose you. You are mine. God says to us and reminds us today, I opened up your eyes to see. I softened your hearts to believe. Like, what a gift. That is grace. What grace. And then get this. When we look at, back at the three subpoints of our first point of true belief, all of those things must be seen through the lens of God's radical grace. If we say true belief courageously endures hardship, we must say we are courageous to endure hardship totally by God's grace. It's not in our strength, but God's strength. It's 100% in the courage and power of God that he entrusted to us by his spirit. So how will we endure through trial and endure until the end? It's not by mustering up a bunch of willpower. No, it's totally in the hands of a gracious God. It's by the grace of God. So how am I standing before you preaching today, where, knowing where I was 18 years ago? It's totally by the grace and power of God. And I don't get it. Like if true belief elevates God's glory and not our own glory and draws our attention to God and not ourselves, it's totally by the grace of God. So how do we build our trust and confidence in the enemy-crushing victory of Jesus? It's all by the grace and power of God. Yes, we are responsible, but God gets all the glory. So how are we on this side of God's power and love? Like, like the cubs of our massive, mighty, enemy-crushing, polar bear-like God? Able to look at our enemy. How are we able to look at the enemy square in the eyes and declare with utter confidence that he has no power over us? It's totally by the grace and power of God. Apart from the grace and power of God, we would be crushed by the enemy. But because of God's grace in our life, we can stand and sing and shout victoriously with an unshakable confidence against the schemes of the enemy. I mean, Christian, how empowering. God is transforming us. God is changing us and shaping us. God is working through us by his grace. In our despair and fatigue, God is working. In our loneliness and sadness, God is working. In our rebellion and disobedience, God is working. And how? Because of his relentless grace. And then you may be thinking, well, if this is the case, then why do we do anything? If God is doing everything by his grace, then should we just sit back and do nothing? And to that we say, absolutely not. Because the evidence of God's grace in our life, it comes out as good, good fruit in our life. The grace and power of God propels us to mission and devotion and life change and love and service and obedience and zeal. It does not keep us apathetic and motionless. God's plan for the world is to work through people. And knowing that God is always working and always softening hearts and always opening up blind eyes, it emboldens us to go and share the gospel. To then see God opened up blind eyes and to see God soften hearts. It emboldens us, and it gives us peace at the same time, knowing that it's not up to me, but it's totally in the hands of God. New City Church, as we end our time today, may we, 
in confidence, remember that God is in the business of breaking down seemingly impossible barriers. God is drawing all people to himself all over the world. I mean, how emboldening is it for us to then know that we can go into an unreached part of the world that is totally hostile to the gospel, fully knowing that God will save some. Our job is to just go and show up and then to tell them about Jesus and see what God does. Like your friend or your family member or your coworker or neighbor that seems too far gone or way too impossible. I mean, how empowering is it to know that it's not in your hands but totally in the hands of God? And that in God's timing and according to his will, he will save those whom he will save. And we get to be the ones he uses to just speak the gospel to them. How empowering is it to know that as we go into this Easter season, leading then into the 21 days of prayer and fasting, starting next week and going into serve week this week, that God is in the business of opening up blind eyes and softening hearts. And we as God's people just get to be the instruments in the process of God opening up eyes and softening hearts. Yes, thinking about unbelief is hard. But when we then realize how it then illuminates and empowers true belief, our faith and belief and zeal and passion for the Lord, it is strengthened. Y'all, we have a great reason to rejoice today. Let's pray. God, you're so good to us. God, you, your grace is overwhelming. God, that you would call us out of the grave, bringing us totally from dead in our sin and bringing us out in the power of God. God, you are crushing the enemy. And we can stand victoriously knowing that we are on the winning side. God, you are so good. We love you. We pray that we would walk in that victory today. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.